I, I get that. My uh, my wife keeps adopting them. We're up to four now. Um, wow. Yeah, so she keeps looking for the cat that'll love her. They just love our kids. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I, I feel the cat pain. Is that a cat in your hat, too? Uh, it's actually a teddy bear. But good, uh, good notice. It's actually this teddy bear. Oh, there you go. This is uh, it's like a homemade hat. What part of New York are you in, by the way? Um, I am on the Upper West Side of New York on the 102nd Street. Oh, wow. I'm coming up for a week um, at like mid-August. I'm teaching at the data school and doing some talks at the Salesforce Tower and stuff. So, yeah, it's like I've, I've seriously only been once in my life, and everyone's always astonished by that. But uh. oh, That's smart. Well, if you want to get a coffee, I'll probably be around. But, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of New York. <laughs> it's, nice, it's, it's nice if you're going to like come visit. But anyway. So I, I wanted to talk to you. Like I've wanted to pick your brain for the longest time because I'm such a massive fan of your books and all your documentaries. And you know you've got shows coming. And it's like, what, what do you call yourself an author? Do you call yourself a documentarian? Like what are you? Oh, that's good. Uh, good question. Uh, I in my I think of myself as a writer. I guess I could say I'm a storyteller. But like even even in the films that I've done with Jonah, my partner, I see myself more as like the, you know, it's a, it's a very symbiotic relationship, but I, you know, he's a little bit more visual than I am. And I always think more of like the story and the writing. So I still think of myself as a writer. Yeah. My first exposure to you was on uh, how did this get made where you were sort of contributing to providing backgrounds on some of these like crazy, either schlock or just train wreck movies. And you were sort of unearthing some of the back history and doing interviews and stuff. And that's where I first heard you. And I was really pulled in because I like sort of knowing the secret side of things like Freakonomics pulled me in back in college. Like, here's the <laughs> secret side of pimping that you didn't know about. I'm like, I'm in like, tell me more. And like, that's what uh, you were for, like, Zardoz and stuff. You know, it's like, what is this crazy movie? How did this happen? And what's the deal? Well, it's because that became quickly one of my favorite podcasts. Like, those guys are so funny. But there is that part of me. That I've always loved behind-the-scenes stories ever since I saw the Larry Sanders show. And, like, so I'm totally drawn. To, I was totally drawn to stuff like Freakonomics. And I was just, like, always wanted them on the podcast to say, like, here's this terrible movie that we're talking about. And here's why someone thought it'd be worth putting $150 million into it. And so when I contacted, I reached out to Paul, like blind, I didn't know him and he didn't know me. And I said, it's the, you know, you guys have the best podcast, but you never actually answer how did these movies get made? Like, why did they get made? And he's like, hmm, you're actually right. I said, well, you should have someone do it. I'll volunteer. But if not me, like get someone else because people would want to know. And that, that, I loved doing that. It was just so hard because every two weeks they would have a new episode and I'd be starting from scratch every week. And, you know, I had uh, other work I needed to be doing, but I actually, I loved that work. It was always very interesting. And it was kind of weird reaching out to people to ask them to talk about their most embarrassing creative moments. Uh, there was like a lot of diplomacy involved. And sometimes I did feel bad because like, as I, whereas the podcast kind of makes fun of, I mean, it does make fun of them. I was like, it's very like I wasn't trying to mock them. I actually wanted to see it from their perspective. But still, you know, it does dredge up some old wounds for some of these people. Well, you're trying to be good cop. And like these people are mo hopefully still trying to work in the industry. Like, you know, right. if, if this didn't totally destroy their career in the first place. And if it did, then you are bringing up like the worst thing that happened to them, you know, career wise. Right. And it's like you're trying to um, 
give them a way to explain it without hopefully throwing other people under a bus in a way that gets them blacklisted. And I mean, I get the grind. Like I do this podcast biweekly and I'm having data people on to talk about, you know, sort of their data portfolios and data visualization and stuff. And like that is far less invasive because like we're talking now, this is just a conversation. I don't have scripted questions for you. I mean, obviously I went and read a couple bios. I refreshed myself in some of your stuff, but I wanted to be able to have these conversations where I actually engage with people and respond to what they're saying rather than jumping to the next question that I had pre-planned and trying to steer you back to that, you know? That's probably partly why we get along or why, you know, you like my work. Like, I I take pride in the fact that I've done uh, certainly 10,000 hours worth of interviews and I've never scripted questions in advance. Obviously, I do a lot of prep work, but I've never had a, like, a written down question because I always want it to feel like a conversation and if something doesn't seem interesting or relevant at the time um have we actually started the podcast the podcast has been going see i I used to actually set people up and i found it just made people more nervous so we'll actually cut to a relevant portion of this probably around the time we started talking about how you got (laughs) started on how did this get made and uh i'm sneaky like that No, no no that's good um i i have a data question for you shoot I know you're supposed to be asking questions, but since this is a conversation, I'm a big or I've always been like a big sports fan. And obviously analytics has really changed all of the sports, but particularly like baseball, basketball. Do you think it's for the better? Like, like, like there's a lot of people like baseball is a good example. It's basically gone towards these three true outcomes of walks, home runs and strikeouts. And it has made the game. Some people think like, boring or not as exciting and I, I would probably be one of those people though or, or i guess here's really the less long the, the long-winded way of getting to has efficiency made sports less interesting because we are, have used analytics to make the games more efficient but they are very uniform now that's that's a really great question because you're you're moving away from the era where you have like sort of big personalities making like you know, big choices of their own, right? And, you know, if you, if you look at this in the context of movies, you know, we had Moneyball, and then we had Clint Eastwood responding with his whole, like, I forget what it was, but it's all about uh, the recruiters and how it's about, you know, seeing that un, untapped talent out there versus the, hey, this person statistically is a better value, you should recruit them. And right. I think that's a really, really interesting point because talking about some of the sports data, within the data community, I'm part of, there's a thing called Sports Viz Sunday where um, it's sports data sets. Like there's some really awesome ones like NBA shots, like over the past like 40 years. You can see every shot that was taken, what type of shot it was, who did it, where on the court, whether it was successful or not. And you can see like the rise of new phenomenon, like the step back and stuff, like moves that didn't used to exist (laughs) and now exist when they came into history, how successful they are and how that changed uh, with different positions and players. And I think, you know, I think one of the big selling points of sports and this is me as not the biggest sports guy. Like I always like the fringe sports, like you know hockey, and I live in the south, um, or uh, arena soccer, like we have down here. But I, I always like uh, the personalities for one. But I think the big thing about sports that people find appealing is that it's pure meritocracy. Like what's happening on the quarter field all comes down to whether you perform or not. And it's like you could say, well, that person's here because their dad, you know, did such and such, and that doesn't exist so much within the realm of sports. Because you're there because you're the best. And if you're not the best, they'll get the best and replace you. And I think that's a lot of the appeal. But I can definitely see what you're saying, particularly 
in sports uh, like maybe football or something where you've actually got play choices and you're saying, well, statistically, this play works 79% of the time. We're not going to go with the play that works 22% of the time. And at that point, it just becomes two statistical machines grinding it out against each other. And I think, you know, that can take some of the fun out of it. But it's fun when people defy the odds, when, you know, something shouldn't have worked and it does. Or like you see Tom Brady come back in the second half of the Super Bowl from what everyone assumed was going to be, you know, a big defeat to a team that, you know, shouldn't probably be there in the first place. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I think you you see both sides of it. Like you see the, um, the, the grindy part of it where it's, you know, people are making those choices statistically or picking their players based on numerical values versus, you know, just sort of scouted talent. But that was a non-answer. That was a good answer. Good answer. I can talk. So I wanted to ask you, like, um, you first, uh, console wars, your first book, right? So how much, okay. First of all, uh, for those that are, that are listening, unfamiliar with console wars, it's the history of Sega versus Nintendo in the early nineties, how Sega sort of rose from sort of maybe being a fringe Japanese product, uh, to recruiting Tom Kalinske away from what reviving Barbie and creating He-Man and making Sega a legitimate rival in the U.S. market to the point where they captured nearly 50% for a couple of years. How did you come up on the story in the first place? Because you write essentially what are business books, but they're right. geeky business books, right? Yeah, I mean, I always thought of my books I mean, like as just narrative case studies. Um, I guess case studies is probably not the best sales tool marketing buzzword, but you know, when I was in college, I always, I always thought case studies were pretty darn interesting. Um, so for me, I, as I told you at the top, I think of myself as a writer. I wanted to be a writer. It's very hard to make a living being a writer. And it's also very hard to figure out how one would even go about trying to be a writer. Cause like we were saying with sports, there's like a meritocracy. Like I play, you know, small forward. So here's the other small forwards I'm against. And hopefully I'm in this highest percentile. With writing, it's not like that at all. With a lot of, you know, with almost all the creative arts, it's, you know, timing, luck, and, and, and like topic, and, you know, like, like, you know, execution is important, but also picking a topic that's marketable, like Sega, Nintendo, and some of the other things I've worked on. And so I had a day job trading commodities uh, throughout my entire 20s, literally until the day of my 30th birthday. And I was always trying to figure out, you know, a way to write professionally. I, wrote screenplays on the side and did a lot of stuff that no one cared about. And, uh, and then I sort of like, I guess came pretty close to quitting the profession to the, the quitting having professional aspirations. Um, essentially after I had some bad luck with the script, um, I realized, or I, I came to believe that there was very little chance that I would ever uh, make money writing. Uh, but I also realized that I loved writing. So it wasn't like, all right, I'm done with writing. I, I was always going to do it. I just, so I figured I'm just going to do this. Basically, this is going to be for fun. And I'm going to, uh, you know, work on something that's really personally interesting to me because, you know, I'm not looking for any commercial gain out of this. And that's what ended up leading to commercial success. And I think that actually happens a lot. I found with people I interviewed, um, just the project, you know, there, there is like a passion projects. Um, that that I don't know if you put more into them or it's because they just believe in this idea that there's something there that other people can't see that they eventually do. But it does seem to be that those projects that people really believe in that they're not doing for the money 
you know, Palmer Lucky with Oculus, who's, you know, center of the second book, like, is a great example. Um, and, uh, and so uh, what actually happened with Console Wars was, as I told you earlier, I loved all my life, I've loved behind the scenes stories. My brother got me a Sega Genesis for my birthday or for Christmas in like, I think 20, 2009 or 2010. And uh, as I was playing it, it reminded me of what we, you know, we used to have a Genesis growing up. And then I just wanted to read a book that was basically console wars, like the behind the scenes story of Sega and Sega Nintendo. And I went to Barnes and Noble in Manhattan on East 6th Street. And I was shocked to learn that they didn't have a single book in the entire store about video games. Um, they, they did have some like walkthrough guides and stuff, but nothing, you know, like nothing more mainstream and nothing about the business side. And compared to like, you know, like I was originally looking by the film history section, the music history section, you would have think you would have thought that there was maybe some books on, you know, the people behind video games, the business of video games or these, you know, dynamic creators. But there was nothing. And, you know, I can't say that I left the store thinking like, aha, there's like an opportunity here. But I did leave the store thinking that's kind of weird. I was even more curious. And then, uh, you know, I tried to do what research I could. I also got some of the books that were out there. It's not to say that Console Wars is the first book about video games, a business book about video games. But, uh, you know, there's some great books like David Chef's Game Over and Harold Goldberg's book of short stories about the game industry. So I, I read all these and, um, and then eventually I thought that there was just a great story with Sega. And I didn't know if there was because I knew that this company went from 5% of the market to surpassing Nintendo to falling back down. But I didn't really know what happened in between. And then it wasn't until I met and talked to Tom Kolinsky for the first time that I realized that there was, in my opinion, a great story there and really like a great human universal story through his eyes. So I'm going to either pay you a huge compliment or a huge insult here, or maybe a huge <laughs> moderate thing. But you actually reminded me of Palmer Lucky in a big sense. And the fact that you sort of doggedly pursued this, not even knowing if there was something there. So Palmer Lucky, who was the subject of your second book, uh, The History of the Future, is the founder of Oculus, which was ultimately acquired by Facebook and ultimately kicked Palmer out. But like 19-year-old in a trailer in his parents' garage, driveway who was like, why did VR never happen? You know, yeah. and he started like, you know, researching and buying old stuff off of eBay. And, you know, in the same way, you sort of like, what did happen with this? You know, what was the thing? Like, I remember Sega Genesis from when I was a kid. Sega really took off. Like, their marketing was slick. It seemed cool to kids, you know. And uh, in, in reading your book, it was fa it's, it's a fascinating case study. And one of the reasons I was thinking about talking to you about this was thinking about all the different things you mentioned in your stories. There's all these big characters. You've got folks on the Nintendo side, stuff on the Sega side. You've got all the different marketing and initiatives that Sega undertook, like to try to break into Walmart, how they put up free games to play in storefronts for kids and bought stadium seats. And it's like, you're gathering all this information and you're struggling to get access to all these people in the first place who may or may not want to talk to you. Like, how do you decide what goes in and what doesn't? Because I just finished doing a podcast. Uh, I'm doing a spinoff called Sunday Comics where I, in my first book, I covered uh, Gene Loon Yang's Dragon Hoops, which uh, he wrote as a teacher at a high school. And it's about the high school basketball team. And it's semi-autobiographical. And throughout the book, he mentions, I don't think we could talk about Coach Phillips and just keep skipping this character from the past of this school. And you keep wondering, why are we not going to talk about Coach Phillips? What's the deal with Coach Phillips? 
And eventually you get to why he was afraid to bring up Coach Phillips. Coach Phillips was asked to leave because he may or may not have had an inappropriate relationship with the student. And, he, you know, he's debating and he's showing you behind, you know, the curtain of him writing this book, the choices that he's making, what to include, and what not to include. How, when you're writing these books, when you're surrounded with all this data, all these stories, like what choices, you know, do you have to make about what you cut and what stays in? Like I just rewatched the documentary of console wars right before we talked, for example, I watched it back when it came out and it's obviously significantly abbreviated from the book. And there's stuff in there that I found really interesting in the book, like the back and forth between um, Sega of Japan and Sega of America about Sonic the Hedgehog, for example, how Sega of Japan wanted a much more aggressive character with sort of a rock and roll theme and, you know, scary teeth. Yeah, with with the, with the yeah. sort of buxom blonde girlfriend named Madonna. And Sega of America is like, when we said kill Mario, we didn't mean literally. We need to be able to get past parents. <laughs> like, it has to feel edgy enough to kids, but safe enough to parents. And, you know, sort of the, the gentle political maneuvering of Kalinske and his team to reposition Sonic so that, you know, the Japanese would be fine with it, but also it would be appealing to American kids. Like, what kind of stuff did you end up having to cut that you would have liked to include, but necessarily didn't contribute to some of these stories that you've told in your books? A lot of stuff. Um, you know, I, I pride myself in doing a ton of interviews for these books and speaking to the firsthand participants um, who were there. And there's so much good stuff that gets cut so much, like, especially along lines of like a trivia or like a, you know, did you know sort of thing. Um, you know, I guess the short, the, the short answer that I would give is that, you know, I try to only include things that are relevant to the central narrative, which is true, but also sort of opaque in the sense that like, you know, central narrative does change. The, the, there is different perspectives in the book. Um, and I think that that's part of what is, awesome about writing um that the robots haven't yet figured out how to do is that there is sort of this human touch and this just feel for it because like even like the, the third book that i'm doing now is about larry david who's my literary hero and you know like if you if, if he's been you know interviewed a million times and people ask him sort of similar things of like what do you keep in and what do you not keep in? And he always says, like, I keep in stuff that's funny if it's funny. But that, but that's not entirely true because what I love about him is that he's an incredible storyteller. And it's not just, like, for the jokes. Like, he actually, you know, he thinks about story. And, and that's where you get into this opaque area where it's, it's, it's cloudy what is relevant and what's not. And, you know, some of my favorite shows are the ones that um, – tangent into other side characters like i was watching uh, the show dave on fx yesterday and some of the episodes aren't even about dave or, or parts of it aren't and i think that um not only is that fascinating but it also does strengthen your appreciation for dave or for the central character like a tom kalinsky um so i guess i'm giving you a lot of things that are not actually answers um because i don't know what the answer is but um i i do maybe it's an obvious thing to do, but I do always approach whatever I'm writing or whatever I'm making it with a film, trying to, to approach it from the eyes of the reader or from the viewer. And like, what would I want to see? Or am I enjoying this? Um, so I never want to try to just do something because I feel like it has to happen, but because I, I would be entertained and because I would be curious, like, oh yeah, what, what is Olaf Olafson up to when we're not, you know, in this meeting with him? I think that's, I mean, look, 
this is going to be a lot of non-answers. Like I said, it's a conversation, <laughs> not an interview. Very few people listen to this in the first place compared to most of the outlets you're on. So I wouldn't sweat it too much. Like this isn't going viral. But um, I was going to say like one of the things I really liked about console wars is you're having to make, I mean, the protagonist of the story ostensibly is Kalinsky, right? So Sega is who you're rooting for, which in most cases, like I bought a Sega Genesis over Super Nintendo because it's what I could afford. Like I saved my money. A Super Nintendo cost twice as much. A Sega Genesis had Sonic, and Sonic was pretty cool. And it came with Sonic 2 at the time, which Kalinsky, including Sonic the Hedgehog for free with consoles, is one of the things that they objected to from Sega Japan in the first place. But one of the things I found interesting is Nintendo has this perception among the American public as sort of the Disney of like video game companies. Like it's it's pretty wholesome, it's innocuous. Their characters are all basically blank slates. They mean kind of nothing. Like, what's Mario? Like, I don't know. He just kind of says woohoo, he doesn't even talk. But uh, I mean, most people don't even know like uh, Sega. I mean, uh, Nintendo started off like printing playing cards for the Yakuza and that they operated like love hotels like and they got busted for monopolistic practices. And then when they had to pay out to the public, they did that <laughs> with Nintendo gift cards, essentially. So you still had to come back and buy from them in the first place. Like it's their business right. history has been very sketch at times, even though they've got this super wholesome rep. And it's funny because in the 90s, they were juxtaposed against Sega and Sega was seen as like the bad boy, like they've got these edgy games and stuff. And, you know, even before like hearings with Congress, you know, Sega was perceived as the more dangerous prospect. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think that in terms of their content, them being the Disney of video games is, is pretty, like they've lived up to that. So I, I do like the idea that they did, they were a company that did make Hanafuku cards for the Yakuza and for casinos. And they did have love hotels, but they really did reinvent themselves. Like it what like this isn't just, you know, jerks in a boardroom being like, aha, we can trick the kids. Like, like the people you talk to there genuinely believe in the vision. Certainly the game developers from Miyamoto on down believe in it. Um, but even though they have that smile of the content, there is the cutthroat business side that you're talking about, which you can totally see with Peter Main and Howard Lincoln and um, some of the other principals at Nintendo of America during that time. And yeah, like kind of going back to my fascination with case studies, it's like, it's pretty incredible that they have, uh, you know, sort of personified or in their own mind, their identity and their success comes from being the Disney of video games. And then they start to lose that success because someone is being the you know r-rated version of video games and you're confronted as a you know as a business like how do you adapt how do you keep your core identity or keep your fan base or your customer base but also try to meet the market demand and i think that one of the interesting things about the battle with sega is that nintendo ultimately decided to not you know uh you know whereas i think most businesses um maybe even most artists try to meet consumer demand uh nintendo didn't they decided like we're gonna make what we're gonna make and you come to us and they've you know i think that's one of the things that makes them heroic and really respectable for better or for worse um you know they still do things their own way and it does bother people a lot of times they still do the quantity shortages stuff so there's you know there's a lot of things to uh be annoyed with them but um getting back to sort of like the Palmer, just doing things out of passion and doing things his own way. Um, you know, I do respect that from, for Nintendo. 
I was talking with a friend about this uh, the other day because I was mentioning uh, console wars. And another unique aspect of the Sega Nintendo rivalry of the early 90s was a moral panic. And much like, um, like say, American comic books saw in the 1950s with uh, Frederick Wortham's book, The Seduction of the Innocent, which claimed that uh, comic books uh, drove kids to crime and homosexuality and all sorts of other things that frightened parents at the time. And realistically, all kids were reading comic books. It was the medium of the time. So it was really hard to disconnect the idea, much like the early 90s. Every child was playing video games and you're having these hearings with like Joe Lieberman before Congress and everything where they're talking about like the light guns. You know, there's the super uh, super scope for Super Nintendo and how these are going to drive kids to be more violent. You know, it's one of those opportunities that with with between the battle of Sega Nintendo, Nintendo seemingly had the upper hands that they had self-censored to a degree more and that they had marketed themselves better while Sega was going for the older audience. And the public had not yet modulated their perception to the fact that adults and teenagers played video games too and not just their eight-year-olds. Right. And, and, and you know, the, the congressional hearings were in December 1993, which was, you know, within a year of, the, of Doom and Wolfenstein and like these the proliferation of first-person shooters. And, and I'll be completely honest, I'm still pretty torn on the issue of violence in video games and whether, like, I mean, the way it's portrayed in the book, because mostly because it's through the eyes of the participants, was that it was like pearl clutching, that it was kind of, you know, just p politicians being politicians. Um, and that was the opinion both at Sega, which thought this was a waste of the time. And Nintendo also used the hearings for strategic business purposes too. Um, I don't think it was that much them being worried about the, you know, the children, but, but, you know, I'm, I really am conflicted with the issue of violence in video games because I am very much a proponent of the first amendment, not just in law, but in spirit. Um, and so I, I do want, you know, companies and creators to be able to make whatever content they want, but I, even though maybe the data suggests otherwise, I find it really hard to believe that violent video games don't lead to violence. I, mean, I think it's a fair topic, right? Like, I, I think, you know, it's it's definitely not closed in, in any capacity. Like, there's not a definitive, like, up or down. I think there's definitely cases where you can point to that, you know, particularly when someone seems less stable. Like, there there can be things that can sort of weaponize that to a degree, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, like, this is purely anecdotal, so the opposite of what you do and, and data. But, like, I remember the first time I played Grand Theft Auto for, like, five days straight and i do remember like leaving my friend's house and like my instinct was to just like rip someone out of a car and steal it and like i had never had that instinct before so i imagine you like play this all the time um again it's anecdotal maybe that was just maybe i'm just a anomaly and other people don't feel that way but but it's also interesting too i remember uh speaking with one of the executives at sega and i won't name names because nowadays and maybe this will lead to history of the future, you know, uh, revealing one's political affiliation, particularly as a Republican, is not a is not always the best thing. But this person said um, they sort of made a comment about how the government got involved and, you know, big government trying to get involved and what a problem it was. And they conceded, though, that it did lead to a lot of good um, because it led to the creation of the ESRB. And I thought, well, it's pretty weird that they, you know, oh, hate this idea of government getting involved, but they're also really happy ultimately the government did because it led it led to exactly what the government wanted the government didn't want to personally review and regulate they wanted the game industry to regulate themselves which i 
also think about that too, because I would love for the internet companies to do something similar. Um, I don't really want the US government, uh, you know, moderating content, but I would love it if there was more responsibility from the big, uh, you know, Silicon Valley companies. But anyway, that's a tangent. Well, in regards to moral panics, you know, the same thing happened to the comic book companies because they were receiving pressure from the government. They regulated themselves. And that's why the modern perception of the American comic book is just superheroes, because all of the crime and Western and horror and all of the other genres that existed back then that kids enjoyed got eliminated because they were seen as sort of the edge cases that you didn't want to be seen as encouraging violence. And that's why. You know, now when people think superheroes, they think the Biff Pal, Adam West kind of thing, because all that stuff got cut. And while that's come back to a degree in the modern era, like the industry is so significantly smaller. It's it's just a fringe boutique product at this point. So let's talk about getting thrown out of the car and let's jump to your second book, which was The History of the Future, which also has a really compelling protagonist in Palmer Lucky, who was the 19 year old who founded Oculus. Um how did you, okay, you came into this book, you know, obviously with console wars, you're coming in with a story that's done essentially. Well, Sega still exists in the present day. It's a shell of its former self. It's not in the heyday. You're, you're looking back at the story. You jumped onto Oculus while it was still up and coming, right? Yeah. I mean, it was tough. Cause I, like I said, I came from a film background, a, fa a failed filmmaker background, but you know, the idea of like a three act structure and, before I ever wrote any actual pages of console wars, I did know more or less and it changed, but I did know more or less like the beginning, middle and end of the book. Uh, whereas with uh, the history of the future and, and with Oculus, I decided that I wanted to write the book, though it would be based on, you know, getting the access necessary. Uh, I, I wanted to write the book almost immediately after console wars came out in, in mid 2014. Um, it took me a couple of years to get the access. So until 2016 and, you know, between that time, uh, Facebook had just acquired Oculus for a few billion dollars in 2014. And then the first product, the CV1, just launched in uh, or, or would launch in March 2016. And so, yeah, I really didn't know where the story was headed. I assumed the story would be headed towards a success or failure with the product. Uh, I definitely didn't expect it to be headed towards where it was with Palmer being fired from the company and the firing being sort of covered up and it being for reasons that had nothing to do with business. Yeah, it's it it turned out to be a far more fascinating book as a result of that. And obvious and really like a really depressing book towards the end because yeah. it's uh I, I joked with you that you keep writing Greek tragedies. You know, it's like <laughs> you write you write these these stories about someone who's taking off and like the sky's the limit and then it all crashes down ultimately. Like with Sega, it ultimately crashes down. There's internecine warfare between the America's team and the Japanese team. They don't have a solid product out there. And ultimately, between Nintendo and PlayStation entering the market, they just crush them and it's over. And, um, you know, with Oculus, obviously, Palmer gets kicked out of his own company. Um, and, I mean, while he seems to be doing great, like he's got... Uh, He's got his own drone company right now that seems to be doing very well. And I mean, what? He's like a 28-year-old billionaire. I mean, we, we shall be so lucky. It's like that's not what he wanted to do. Like he loved VR. He loved the idea of this and would have continued to work at the company in a reduced role had they allowed him. Yeah. I mean, well, I should mention it's not just a drone company. It's it's a military defense company that's already worth more than Oculus and Andral, um, which is, you know, as an American, we're, we're happy that they're doing good defense uh, work for less money but uh but yeah like i mean i have interview clips of me talking to him 
before any of the scandal controversy happened and him saying like, I want to be doctors forever, not necessarily full time, but that, you know, worst case, this would just be like his base, like the, you know, like the, what, like the company that was part of his heart that he would always be involved with. And then to be kicked out, um, was unexpected. And, uh, and, and like, and I liked your comment when you, you told me that you thought that I wrote Greek tragedies and, and it made me realize that, Part of the reason I wanted to write about Oculus after Console Wars is I didn't want to write another Greek tragedy because I did care so deeply as a person and also as like an author for Tom Kalinske and Ellen Bethany and Gus Kirk and Chernobyl. And it was like sad for me to that the story ended a sad way. And I wanted to write about a company that didn't have that ending. And I, if I, um, I guess it's good that I'm not a betting man because I would have bet on Oculus to be incredibly successful and for this to have like a happy ending. And, and I thought that's the book I was going to be writing. Um, like I remember when I was pitching it to the, my publisher, Harper Collins, I told them that the access I had given, it was like, oh, I, I get to be inside of Apple in the late 70s as I launch, um, you know, the first computer. And, and I thought the Apple analogy was a good one because when we think of Apple, we think of Apple now. Um, but, you know, just to tangent for a second, like with personal computers, Apple was was incredibly successful for what they were, but even with their success in the late 70s, my family didn't own a personal computer until the mid 90s, and I think that that was pretty common. So it was like, it wasn't like there was mass adoption um, as the end result of Apple's success in the 70s, and I, I assume the same would be the case with Oculus, where it would be like very successful, but it wouldn't be like, you know, my grandma owns one yet. I mean, look, I got one because of your book. So my my wife bought me one because I could not stop talking about the history of the future. <laughs> I was I was so sucked in. I was pulled in by like just the journey of the technological development, like even just the building of the company. You know how there's this team assembled around Palmer, people that are highly invested uh, all throughout. They're having to pull in new consultants to address technological issues. No one had thought about like what happens when you jump up and down real quick. Like how does that mess right. up equilibrium? You know, like all of these things you never think about. And, you know, and uh, and John Carmack, you know, from id Software, how he was involved early in the process and how there was sort of the relationship between him and Palmer, you know, and and various business dealings that went in all sorts of twisty ways um, throughout. But, yeah, it's it is unfortunate that uh, that turned out to be uh, such a Greek tragedy in the end. So I, I was saying, like, I hope that you don't know anything about Larry David that we don't, because that would be three <laughs> in a row where, uh, you know, yeah. something goes terribly wrong. Well, but and it's again I, the reason I was thinking about your Greek tragedy comment was sort of in relation to the Larry book because I, even more so than with Console Wars, I left the History of the Future with a very sour taste in my mouth for the characters, and I wanted to work on something that I'd be excited to wake up each morning and work on, and and feel optimistic about. And so writing about Larry, <laughs> knock on wood, hopefully going to be that. It has been for the past couple of years, but. Um, yeah, hopefully there's not any big downfall for Larry. I, I don't see it happening. He's too too much of a of a hero. Larry's so Larry that it would astonish you if there was anything about him you didn't know. Yeah, I agree. People have asked me like, "What's Larry really like?" And I say that, in short, he's pretty much like he is on the show, except he is a sweetheart, or there's a big part of him that's like a sweetheart. Um, you know, like he he. Uh, he's as quick-witted and as funny 
but he does actually care about people all the way. You know, he's sort of famous with Seinfeld and then continue with Curb for the mantra of no hugging, no learning. Um, and he's not sappy like that, but he does actually care about other people. Um, and, and, you know, like I remember the first time he was talking about how much he loved Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg and Dave Mandel, who are the young Seinfeld writers who helped with Curb and have now basically, you know, they're like the pillars of the TV industry between Silicon Valley and Veep and the league. Um, and he just said he loved those guys. And I was thinking like, TV Larry would never say that. TV Larry would never like express love or affection for another human, um, certainly not, you know, colleagues. But but yeah, he he's... He's wonderful. I, I thank Larry on Thanksgiving for uh, proving everyone who said don't meet your heroes wrong because he's certainly my hero and he's lived up to it. That I, I couldn't think of any better note to start to wrap this up on than that. Um, in regards to what's coming up, uh, you know, from what I can tell, because I've been researching you, you have a uh, another console wars mini series coming out. Yeah, we're still uh, developing the mini series with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Um, and then my partner, Joan and I, who I directed the documentary with and who I do all my film work with, uh, we're, we're trying to do something with history of the future. Uh, you know, I, I love that story as well. Um, and, and I actually, like, we, I want to do this in a series. I think the console series would be great. I'm glad that you enjoyed the console Wars documentary and I'm super, super proud of it, but it was really tough to condense into 90 minutes, something that clearly I could talk about for 500 pages. And so I think the, the series format or limited series format is like much more, uh, you know, up my alley. I think if we were getting stuff like bad vegan and McMillions, I think easily we can get console wars and history of the future series. Like there, that shouldn't be any problem. Well, you'd be surprised. We'll see. Um, Mick Millions is great though. Spectacular. That, yeah, that great storytelling. That yeah, I've, I've worked with those guys on Unrealistic. I'm very impressed. Like that that because that's a hard story to put together. They could you know, and they did it. It, it was deployed very well. So if you haven't seen Mick Millions, check that out before you read my books because Mick Millions, you won't be disappointed with. I enjoyed it in particular because I used to work at St. Jude, so I didn't realize that they received ah. a million dollar McDonald's ticket back when I was like 12 or something. So that was a particularly fun find for me. really cool well i want to say thank you so much for your time thanks for coming on i know you're in hot demand um and i look forward to your future projects and for everyone that's wanting a uh, fun documentary to check out go on paramount plus check out console wars it's definitely worth the watch all right thanks for having me on and i just want to let you know i i do very sincerely appreciate how supportive you've been of the book um I, i i know you think i'm a big celebrity i am with my cats so not as much as I would like with the male cat, but, uh, but, you know, writing is a lonely process. One that I love, but, you know, getting kind words from you does make a difference. It's inspiring and it makes me want to keep doing good work. So thanks so much, Zach. And let me know when you're in New York, if you want to grab a coffee or something. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. 
You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you could get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.